0: The following podcast is brought to you by fantasy-animation.org, an online educational resource dedicated to fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Alongside this podcast, Fantasy Animation provides an online space for discussion and debate amongst like-minded academics, practitioners, special interest groups and fans to meet, discuss and share their respective insights with wider audiences a range of editorials, reviews and creative reflections, we cover everything from experimental animation to the Playmobil movie, which is experimental in its own way I guess. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org. But for now, do enjoy the show. Listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. Today, I think I am Alex Sargent. Uh, And today, I am definitely Chris Holliday. Or or are you a manifestation of the underworld, Chris? Uh, That we'll we'll find out over the next
1: hour. I'm certainly... um... Uh, yeah, something that is labyrinthine and potentially allegorical, but also.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, listeners, today we're doing Pan's Labyrinth. Um, again, luckily for you, it's not just Chris and I joining us this week. Um, we have very esteemed guest um, and, and delighted to introduce us to the podcast. Professor Deborah Shaw, um, author of such works as uh, The Three Amigos, the transnational filmmaking of Guillermo del Toro, um, Alejandro González Inviato and Alfonso Cuaron. Published by Manchester University Press and the Transnational Fantasies of Guillermo del Toro, um, co edited with Anne Davies and um, Dolores um, Tierney. Um, Deborah is also a professor at uh, the University of Portsmouth, and I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, therefore, onto the show. Uh, Deborah, thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, people. Thanks for inviting <laughs> me.
0: Um, Deborah, um, we thought you would be an obvious. Um, guest for Pan's Labyrinth. We've been wanting to do it on the show for a long, long time. I certainly have. It's a film I'm itching to chat about. But I wondered if we could start off by um, you just telling the listeners um, where you're coming at the movie from, maybe um, the story of your personal relationship with it and some of the sort of broad headlines that you sort of think about in relationship to the movie.
2: Well, I mean, in a way, I went on the journey with the film because I'm a, a Latin American film specialist and came to the Not you know, areas that are outside my specialism because there were these Mexican filmmakers who were making English language film. So really I started as a beginner and I I loved the journey that the the film took me on because it took me on, you know, researching fantasy, um, all these different kind of inter, you know, connections with art cinema, fantasy cinema. I knew about the Spanish politics, but I hadn't seen the Spanish politics of the post-Civil War treated in this way, so I kind of wanted to explore how effective that was and why this film had broken through in a way that a lot of the other films that I was researching, writing about teaching hadn 't you know most of my students hadn't heard of most of the films that I was writing on, but they had this film, so I was kind of interested in exploring why was it that this film had broken through
0: yeah, that certainly chimes with my experience when I first saw it. I think I, I was probably. I have an undergrad or math student, and um, I hadn't heard of Guillermo del Toro before, and I was sort of starting to formulate my own sort of feelings on on cinema and what I might do as a a research project, potentially for a PhD. And I think this was a crystallising moment for me in terms of developing an intellectual relationship with fantasy, if I'm honest, because exactly as you say, it's a movie that treats fantasy... Well, it does two things. One, it treats fantasy in a very different way from, say, mainstream the mainstream genre... But it also mainstreamed a way of approaching fantasy that is sort of um, I've since learned, you know, part of all these different traditions around the world. And, 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 and that, that made the topic really exciting for me. Yeah. And, and it filmed. made us
2: take it seriously, didn't it? Yeah. It was like we, this is this is a very serious issue. And fantasy actually is the best medium to tell this story, to, you know, to reach these people, you know, mm. more people. So, yeah, absolutely agree
0: yeah no absolutely so, and it's a fascinating movie to um know uh, play with and unpack and and offer different um interpretations as to what's sort of bubbling around um in it so uh so let's let i guess we should um get get to it Chris you watched it had a slightly different relationship with the movie. Yes,
1: I mean, if you'd have, yeah, if we'd have done this podcast yesterday, I would have next to no relationship with this movie. But um, I've just, I've come to it fresh and I've just, I've just seen it. And I was saying to you a little bit before we started that I thought it was superb. Um, I don't know much about the kind of Francoist period that it's sort of relating to, its sort of historical um, uh, context, the sort of historical paradigms that are clearly both circulating around and embedded fully within the film. I liked its relationship, and and, and and it's interesting you use the word kind of crystallised because for me it crystallised a lot of things and took things that we've talked about previously on this this podcast across a, a number of episodes um, in different directions. So it kind of crystallised a particular kind of relationship between allegory and fantasy, which I really um, really liked, uh, and also this idea of CGI. And obviously the film has lots and lots of visual effects. Um, again, like previous episodes we've done, it sort of mixes. Um, physical, practical effects with and in-camera effects and animatronics with uh, digital technology. And so it was, again, crystallising some things around CGI's relationship to the monstrous. And there's been a bit of writing around CGI's relationship to monstrosity um, and how CGI often in, in film. It's interesting, again, that you say it's different in ways to, to sort of other mainstream films, uh, that the CGI is not necessarily the domain of evil in the film. So I have some interesting, or hopefully some um uh, things to say about digital technology, its relationship to the monstrous um, and sort of trying to locate it because that's one of the things that a lot of people have said to me about the film. Or you should see it because it's got incredible um, digital effects and visual effects and uh, those people were not wrong. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to kind of work through, as you say, all the, all the different angles and um, and work out work out what the film's uh, about. Maybe that's your, normally Alex's first question is, what's the film about? Um, so I'm hoping well, to be able to to get into that. <laughs>
2: I mean, just, just getting back to the, the digital effects. I mean, I wrote about this film a long time ago and I'd need to look back at my notes. But one of the things that del Toro is really keen on is having as many practical um, effects as possible and you know, being very creative in the design of the actual creatures and only using CGI when it's absolutely necessary. So yeah. that, that's kind of interesting in, in response to what you're saying as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was in terms of the, the way and the... the the, caref- the precision of the effects and when there's a practical effect. And, and mm-hmm. it sort of doesn't matter that you are, you know, special effects spectatorship is, is a very sort of thorny and, and complex issue in terms of when moments when we assent to the technology and assent to the effect, when we buy into it, is, is a special effect only defined a relationship to what it's not. Um, we want to know it's an effect. We don't want it to be sort of invisible. And so it's, it's and because again, and, and again, like so many films, it uses a sort of um, a fantasy film that uses as a child spectator, essentially, you know, a surrogate spectator. Um, Yeah, I thought it was an interesting, it's not about effects, Alex. It's not about animation, but um, it's about, you know, belief. And and I also like the fact that this was a fictional world that had its own mythology and you had characters in it that believed and didn't believe. And so I I, I liked that sort of idea of of, um, spectatorship as it's embedded in in the film itself.
0: And from what I've, um, remember actually just from watching sort of DVD extras on, on the, on the, on the disc, um, there's a lot of, um, CGI in, in subtraction and removal in this movie. A lot of the, um, you know, prominent uses of CGI are taking out Doug Jones's legs, um, as a mm-hmm. fawn or, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of horrific moment with, um, Captain Vidal's uh, face injury. Yeah, um, so yeah. There's quite a lot of moments where CGI is at its most prominent when it when it um, you know takes something away rather than adds something to it, which is, I think is a really interesting dialogue with the fantasy narrative, which essentially adds a fantasy narrative to you know a, a you know pertaining to be historical reality. So there's a sort of give and take, push and pull relationship between the, the use of CGI and the use of fantasy in the movie. That's quite interesting to think about too. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I guess on that on that note, my first note on the film is is exactly that that it opens in Spain in nineteen forty four, and I was not expecting. You know, we've talked previously, I think, about fantasy's relationship to to allegory and how fantasy and I think you challenged this you know on occasion that one of the critiques or critiques of criticisms of fantasy is that it only means something when it's allegorizing something that it only means something if you can read fantasy symptomatically as a product of the culture that both produces it and creates it but um, what I liked about this film is that that immediate sort of title card of Spain 1944 I thought okay so this is not and the way that the fantasy works in the film, and I thought, I wonder, is this is this something where we're not having? I'm not having to read the allegory per se into the monsters. That I I like the fact that the fantasy and the monsters coexist with a, a political climate that's being placed front and center. So this wasn't, you know, this isn't a film made a couple of years ago that is set today that is allegorizing the 1940s. It's set in the 40s. And has that sort of framing historical narrative onto which it then affixes or into which it then places all these different sort of fantasy elements. So I was trying to think about fantasy's relationship to allegory and then more broadly what that the stakes of that sort of 1944 setting really. So, um, yeah, I think that's what I mean by sort of sharpening the relationship between allegory and fantasy. Mm -hmm. Fantasy is not necessarily allegorizing per se the politics, but it seems to coexist in the fictional world with it.
2: I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, um, you know, the relationship between the fantasy and the reality. And really the question was, does the fantasy give light to the reality or does it distort it? And when I originally wrote about this, I struggled with the ending because I thought the people that didn't know about the, the Spanish Civil War may have thought that because of the fantasy element, there was a happy ending, you know, that the, the fascists are defeated, Captain Vidal is defeated, um, the Mackie have their, their victory, um, Ophelia goes to the underworld and lives happily ever after. But then I was kind of, I had to do a talk on the 10 years of of the film. Um, and it really made me think about how the film has outlasted the moment and how it's become this kind of perennial allegory for fascism. And so while, yes, it does distort what happened historically, it's become a commentary on on the forces of evil, of fascism, that are both embedded in the Spanish, the post-Spanish Civil War. But, you know, we can also apply it to, to Trump's America or, you know, the rise of the right now. And, you know, del Toro has tweeted an image of the pale man when when mm. Trump was elected, saying, you know, he's he's still here. So I thought that was kind of interesting of the, the kind of marriage between fantasy to bring out the reality. Mm. You know, the, the fascist is always there. The pale man is always there and he can be reanimated at any point in history.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned the ending, Deborah, because I'm 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 obsessed with that because that sort of dynamic. Um, and when I've been thinking about the movie in terms of I remember walking out of the cinema um, and then, you know, and dragging about, you know, various groups of friends to go see it for, a, you know, a month period. And, and I'd invariably have the same frustrating conversation with them as they would walk out of the cinema and all they'd want to talk about is, is the fawn real or not? Which I guess we yeah. can talk about on the podcast for a bit. And the film suddenly, you know, sets that up. Although I think Dale Thomas sort of stepped away from that question as if he never really wanted that to be a thing. But it there are certain moments that I think certainly invite the spectator to, to deliberate on that. On you know is is what's happening here um, a um, a little girl's imagination shielding her or or from the the true horror of war or is what's happening here a, a sort of you know quote unquote real fantasy narrative interweaving with a historical narrative?
2: Yeah, and it's um, both.
0: Well, yes, it's it's both and it's neither yeah. in the sense that yeah. it's sort of um, in the sense that actually, as exactly you're mm-hmm. saying there's to think about this as one's a historical reality and one is a fantasy is to completely misunderstand the melding of tones going on here because yeah, actually exactly. it ends on a fantasy it ends on um you know the communists defeating the fascists um which you, and, and and so that's you know that's more fantastical than the girl dying and and going to the underworld or at least yeah. just fantastical and, and so I think what's what's really fascinating about them isn't the question, is the fawn real or not? It's, it's the question, um, do we have to decide? And if we don't decide, what fun can we have? Because actually, the, the, the tone of the movie is much more about the interweaving of fantasy and reality across the two worlds, rather than two worlds in, in sort of contrast or dialogue with one another.
2: I think that's exactly the, the approach I would take. I didn't like the, the whole debate: did she, did, didn't she, is she, isn't she? It, it's a fantasy yeah. structure, so yes, she does go go to the the underworld. And I think the main point is the monsters are real, mm-hmm. and the heroes are real, and they may take human form. You know, the Captain Vidal and the Pale Man are mirrors of each other, and they both exist. They both exist. You know, in our in our Fears the captain is the wolf, and he is the pale man, and he's also an actual man who can inflict terrible harm on people. So yes, absolutely, all of these things, which is why the fantasy and the realism is is such a good, you know, format for this film.
0: Yeah, and and then if you sort of play with that a little bit, the sort of that trickles into. You know, it's, it's almost like, I, to me, it's almost as if Chris and I make this metaphor on the podcast all the time. But it's almost like, you know, um, Guillermo del Toro takes um, oil and takes water, um, takes fantasy and reality at the beginning um, and then ju- puts them together in a, in, a, in a beaker and then just stirs them um, and stirs them and stirs them and stirs them to the point that at the end of the movie, it's hard to tell which is which anymore.
2: Yeah. And that's great. He he talks about that that fusion and how he has the fantasy you know, color palettes, for example, uh, move into the realist color mm. palette. So he, it's a very deliberate merging of the two forms. Well,
1: actually, on that note of of merging, I was um, looking a little bit at the film's relationship to to visual effects and 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 CGI. It seems that the way that it's sort of been been talked about is how again it sort of it offers something different. It's more it's more of a kind of careful, um, considered, and sort of suggestive melding between. Um, you know, live action effects, but essentially historical reality, you know, a fictional world rooted in history and then um, a more sort of uh, hypothetical fantasy world rooted in CGI and, you know, a world of what if and, and so forth. Um, but placing the film within a sort of CGI um, context, a lot of the writing around the film um well there's a piece that I'm reading at the moment that places the film in relationship to something like the the mummy which is about in you know, a collision or an intrusion of of the real you know historical reality with with kind of fantasy and and um one of the ways that the film the mummy is talked about is that the the visual effects the digital effects of all these sort of um uh, reanimated corpses and so forth are pl- sort of placed in in inverted commas like we know the visual effects are evil these are the monsters and they are they're in inverted commas and they kind of come in and, and cgi is very much anchored to this um domain of the evil and our world is the good world you know um because we've the way that the monsters are being treated is a kind of with this ironic um reflexivity. But um Alan Kirby in a book on digimodernism cites Pan's labyrinth particularly um uh, as a film which kind of juxtaposes a similarly real period, i.e., the 1940s, um, with this CGI realm of the fairy tale and and, and horror, but he says that it entirely omits this kind of. Uh, he says the, uh, the horror, uh, the film admits uh, entirely the postmodern is presumably superfluous. its intertwining of ontological levels is richer and more suggestive than uh, many more commercial movies. Um, and then he goes on to compare it to, to kind of Lord of the Rings, and then a little bit later on Harry Potter. But the um, Uh, Yeah, there's something quite dexterous and quite skillful in the way that the fantasy and the CGI is combined together with the historical reality of Spain in the in the 1940s. Um, You know, of course, it raises these obvious questions about, okay, so who are the real monsters? What makes things and people grotesque? and actually, as a question I was going to ask, I guess, Alex, but both of you really is, is when I was watching this, I was thinking, OK, so what kind of fantasy then is it? Is it, uh, you know, the, the film is established in the 1940s and we have this intrusive fantasy. And then I thought, well, actually, it's probably something like an Alice in Wonderland style portal quest where, um uh, failure goes through the the sort of magic labyrinth into the world, into the underworld, sort of thing. Um, so I off air I said to Alex, Oh, I wonder, I'm going to ask you which one is it then? Which one is it? Is it a portal quest where a character goes through, or is it an intrusive fantasy where fantasy comes into the historic reel real? Uh, and Alex said it
0: was neither, it's a liminal, Chris. Um, so these are back to, to um, we use these categories all the time the, uh, from Farrah Mendelsohn's book, Rhetorics of Fantasy. Um, a liminal fantasy um, actually takes, it's backs to this idea of, of, you know, this idea of is the fantasy real or not being part of the question, part of the sort of atmosphere of the movie. Um, is it's, A liminal fantasy takes its roots from a, a genre called the fantastic, which I think we've talked about in the podcast before, but um, it's sort of articulated by Sven Stan Todorov in his book, The Fantastic, Um, And it's basically stories that um, evoke their own incredulity, stories that invoke their own disbelief, um, stories that that are about um, whether things are real or not, and whether we should be believing them or not. Um, So, you know, a classic story that fits into the genre of the fantastic would be something like um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher where um, a, um, a series of fantastical events are recounted to the to the, the reader from the perspective of the narrator. And by the end of the story, you can't work out whether these things are really happening in the story or whether they're sort of signs of um, the character's own um, mental derangement, as, as probably Poe would have put it at least. Um, so this has an element of that going on here. It collides things that we are nominally supposed to believe in with things that we are nominally not supposed to believe in. Um, and that's the rhetoric of the movie. It's, it's, it's uh, about that clash um, and about encouraging the, the, the sort of spectator to always be almost adopting a somewhat critical distance from the movie. So I guess that's what it fits into.
2: The, the point of view of this film is Ophelia's. And she starts by reading fairy tales. Um, and then, it, you know, there's a really interesting relationship with literature throughout the film. Um, and funnily enough, it's now been, the film has now been written into a, a novel, but I can talk a bit more about that later. But Ophelia's world is never in doubt. It's the doubting adults who, who are the problem in this film. And the audience is always placed in the position of Ophelia. Um, so we never don't believe the fancy. We, we might question the motives of the faun, but we never question whether he's real. If we enter into the world that Del Toro opens for us,
0: it's interesting you posed that as a question, though. Um, so, do you think the film in in it offers you a way of not entering that world, or do you
2: think? No, I really don't. I think the only reading he gives us is, you know, it's hmm. Pan's Labyrinth. You you go into Pan's Labyrinth. It's not that you know does. I think this whole does pan exist, is the underworld exist within the world of the film and within understanding Del Toro's kind of, you know, Mm. cosmology really. Fantasy is real, this is not a question. That, that's my
1: reading of it. Well, I, I suppose, you know, I know, I've heard Alex previously say, you know, that fantasy exists and, that's, and that certainly this this sort of liminal fantasy seems to to fit exactly with that. I mentioned at the start, you know, that I liked the fact that this was a world or a fictional world that had its own mythology. You know, it has its own history, but it has it, it has its own tales. Um, and if it has its own tales, then it naturally has people that believe them, then it has people that doesn't believe them. That's one of the ways, I think, that the quote-unquote realism of a fictional world in, in a film or whatever it is sort of uh, established there are facts that are known to some uh, to all and to none um, and so there's an interesting you know the world has its own mythology and then you have um bigger questions of, uh, of belief. But it's interesting that you said that the film is told um, from Ophelia's point of view. And I've got a couple of notes, you know, that she's, she's kind of escaping the real, she's using fantasy as a kind of coping mechanism as, as a moment of catharsis. You have characters that surround her. I think her mum says uh, magic does not exist. You have Vidal, who is one of the best villains and who I actively cheered at the end when he got his comeuppance, um, he calls fairy tales junk. Um, And so, obviously, there are these different registers of of belief. And then, but in terms of subjectivity, you have that final, one of the final shots, which is one of the shots from Vidal's point of view, where he's looking at um, a failure talking to the fawn and the fawn's not there. And that was the first moment that I thought that that was a really interesting moment because it it visualises belief.
2: Yeah, but. But And a couple of things. One, Ophelia doesn't need fantasy to escape her reality. Yeah. Fantasy is very hard. You know, she has to go and meet the pale man. She has to kind of do disgusting things yeah. with, a, with a toad. So fantasy isn't this shiny world. The reward at the end comes from facing fantasy and all of the, its horrors. And I I just had a thought as well with the Captain Fidel at the end. He doesn't see the fawn. And then he's shot in the eye, which is quite interesting. So it's almost like his point of view is destroyed because it's not valid.
0: Yeah. Maybe, is there, I'd like to unpack the sort of political um, substance of any of this, because I, I've never really quite thought that bit all the way through. But it seems to be equating um, the ability to, to imagine with some sort of sort of progressive politics in the movie in that it, it seems yes. to equate um, the, a, a fascist as someone who refuses to engage in a fantasy. Yes. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm just interested in what your thoughts would be on that, Deborah.
2: I think that's a lovely thought, um, a really interesting way of reading it. I was thinking about the doctor who is shot and when he says mm. he, he has some final line, which something to do with the fact that people like you talking to the captain can't see any other way. You can only see following orders. And I think you're right. Disobedience is a key theme of the mm. film. The power of disobedience. And in order to be disobedient, you have to have the power of imagining another reality. So I think your point is a very good one. Um, that I, I think everything we're saying here is that fantasy isn't escape. Fantasy is a way of reaching a different, a better reality.
1: <laughs> you know, there's the one way to look at it, which is my... Yes, she uses it as a, as a coping mechanism, but actually, she doesn't use it as a coping mechanism simply because, as you say, like the, the fantasy world is is difficult and and kind of grubby. You know, it's it's this isn't a sort of pleasurable escape from from the the cruel reality of Spain in in nineteen forty four. I mean, it, it is it is that because one of the, the obviously the felt the way that the film sets up its uh, geography is the fact that you have you join characters in the middle of sort of directional movement. So they're traveling to the countryside. And actually one of the the early conversations between Ophelia and her, her mum is about you know, the noises that you hear, you know, that you're used to, having an experience an audiovisual sensation of of uh, modernity versus this sort of natural space so they're they're already detached and removed and it's you know it, it sort of sets up that um dislocation and so I thought okay so I wonder whether then the fantasy is compensating for her um dislocation her sense of uh, geographical dislocation but also the cruelties of 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 the real because she very rarely shares the screen she's often on her own you know she very rarely shares the screen with other characters who aren't her, her mother and then you're absolutely right that actually the fantasy isn't presented as this um, uh, a moment of escape necessarily. It's, it's grubby and it's it's uh, task based, and uh, uh, you know when she accidentally, well, not accidentally, when she takes her and eats a couple of grapes, um, mm-hmm. that reveals her inability to be obedient. Going back to your point about themes of disobedience, so yeah, I think the fantasy does more than just. Uh, offer an escape from the real and, and make these make it easy for us to make claims about fantasy is this moment of catharsis I think actually it's a lot more complex than that and you're absolutely right.
2: yeah and all, and actually and these are really good points and actually the Maquis are also living in a fantasy world you know the the reality is as as I think um, Ophelia and the doc uh, sorry Mercedes and the doctor <clears throat> say to them you're not going to win this one And they know that and they kind of say, well, at least we're going to make it hard for them. So theirs also is a kind of impossible utopia that they're fighting for, which is its own kind of fantasy, I guess. So I think Alex's point about, you know, the the fascists have a closed down mentality versus the kind of, um, you know, Mackie and Ophelia who have this potential fantasy, which allows them to reach another level. But this is
0: the paradox of sort of, of fantasy. I mean, I, I, the word escape, every time it comes up on the podcast and in just in conversation at conferences or anything to me, the, mo- the more it's used, the less I understand what it means. Because yeah. because there's no, I can't think of a fantasy film that, that fits this criteria. Because even obligatory Wizard of Oz of the, re- of the Week reference, mm-hmm. but even like the Wizard of Oz, a classic film of supposed escapism, um, Dorothy yeah. doesn't want, Dorothy may sing Over the Rainbow, but when she gets there, one, she immediately wants to go home. She doesn't want to be in yeah. Oz. And two, when she's in Oz, she's attacked by, you know, wicked witches and threatening yeah, her life. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, there is no, you know, where's this film that we all think exists where the characters yeah. jump into clouds and sing a song and then come back? You know, it, it, it's not, it doesn't exist. What exists is a, is a way of telling stories in which characters process um reality for want of a better word through a different uh lexicon a different vocabulary the whole point of the wizard of yeah. Bond, right is that she learns um to see her home differently because of the journey she goes on and we could get into a yeah. massive conversation about the politics of that movie but we'll pause that one we'll come back to fans
2: well actually let's not pause that one just for a second because just because uh, del toro is cited it as a as a an influence and in the final scene she's you know wearing her red shoes when uh, Ophelia becomes the princess Moana, and I thought it was interesting that it subverts the kind of hero's journey type tales in that Ophelia doesn't mm. return home. I always wondered yes. why, you know, Dorothy goes back, wants to go to Drab Kansas, and, and here Ophelia does stay in the the kind of so she transcends the drab reality and. Unlike you know, there is the reference to the Wizard of Oz, but there's also a subversion to the Wizard of Oz because she doesn't go home; she goes somewhere better.
0: No, I think that's I think that's important because I think I think the Wizard of Oz is often. I mean, I I, I go back and forth on the movie, but I think you know it, it, it's often read as an incredibly conservative um, you know tale of of valuing one's own home over anything else. What does Dorothy say at the end? I, I won't look beyond my own um, backyard because if it's not there, then yeah. I don't need it, or I won't I, I won't be looking for it. It's that, it's that closing down, you know, of, of horizons is what the film sort of celebrates. Yeah. I think that's perhaps a slightly simplistic reading of the movie, but, um, but it's certainly been written that way by okay. a lot of scholars. Um, um, so, yeah, this is a sort of, you know, a left-wing progressive retelling of that in that, that, that you know, that the character does Although transcend to
2: the new horizon some, of possibility. some people didn't like the ending. I had a discussion with a Spanish scholar who felt that the ending was almost a reference to Franco's fame with the king at the top of the, you know, uh, sitting uh, on the throne, and it, it, so some people have argued there's quite a patriarchal ending that does refer back to a kind of monarchist Spain. I don't have that reading, but you know that there is that that mm-hmm. debate.
1: Oh, it seems so that the the final sort of shots, this sort of restoration of hierarchy, has been read, uh, or as part of uh, has been read as part of the broader ambivalence that the or ambiguity that the end of the film seems to suggest but it doesn't clarify but it makes muddy even further
0: Mm, yeah hi everyone just pausing the podcast here for a second i hope you're enjoying our guest deborah shaw speaking about pan's labyrinth Um, Don't forget that uh, as well as these guest episodes, we're also doing an episode for you each month. So each month um, will be a listener choice. We're looking for themes at the moment of your favourite comic book movie or graphic novel adaptation. And we'll be covering it on the next episode of the show. So you've got another week or so to get your suggestions in. You can do it via Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Reddit at FanAnim research f-a-n-a-n-i-m research or on our email address fananimresearch at gmail.com if you're not a fan of any of those forms you can also contact us via the website there is a contact us tab where you can fill out a quick form and email us directly that way Get your suggestions in. We will read out as many as possible on the show. If you want yours to be featured, just let us know why, who you are, what perspective on the movie you're coming at it. And if you really want to, you can provide us with an audio file of 30 seconds or less and we'll try to play as many on the show as possible. We're really looking forward to receiving your um, suggestions. And I now, because I don't really like speaking in these things without Chris, it unnerves me. I'm looking forward to getting back to whatever it is we were talking about.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, I, I this thing about. I mean, I'm really interested in in this thing about obviously the role of effects, but and the role of the fantasy and and this sort of kind of perspective and and still the jarringness oh. of the of that shot where Vidal doesn't see doesn't see the fawn. And I've been trying to, you know, I've been thinking about the role of perspective and, and obviously the motif of eyes. And if I, if I remember, I mean, I was going to say if I remember, I saw it at seven thought this morning. But um, the the, uh, the the opening shot, obviously, you have. It's you know it, it has this this kind of title card, but it has um, a failure. And if I remember, it's a kind of close up of her mm-hmm. face, eyes. Like we we're kind of looking at her, um, and then you obviously have the the um, monster with the hands in the eyes, and then and, and mm-hmm. I don't know this uh, mm-hmm. this mo- this motif of kind of eyes and and seeing, and uh, obviously then a, a narrative level, the level of kind of yeah. drama and jeopardy. Yeah. It's uh, the the film is about you Know competing forces, but it's also about um, spies and infiltration and passing notes and things that are hidden. And so the fantasy of the film, you know, there's there's a nice parallel to be made between I think is when the moment one of I think it's her second task where she has to draw with the chalk, which is very kind of Beetlejuice esque, you know, that sort of. um manipulation of thresholds and borders and boundaries so when she draws on the wall uh and at various points on the floor and then she kind of makes this this portal through the use of this magic um uh, chalk it's it's sort of a nice parallel to to mercedes when she's hide she hides the letters and she hides things about her persons and she slips
2: and she's not you know there's also a debate about can it be read as a feminist film and, I, and we can go there if you want but what one of the one of the themes as well as yeah. that Mercedes isn't seen because she's only a woman and because she's only a servant so she's able to actually be as you say, this, this powerful spy who has eyes because she's not seen um just yeah
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And doesn't she I think she declares that when she's finally um spoiler alert, you know, when she's finally sort of captured and and um and, and, and you know that that's really what the what the film's you know the film is um a failure's perspective and point of view and, and imagination. But what I was waiting for, um one I was waiting for the doctor to be discovered, and the second thing I was waiting for was um Vidal and Mercedes to have this to have this scene together where where the power relation between them shifts. Um, And even though she's tied up, she exactly, as you say, Deborah, she says, um, you know, that's how I was able to get away with it because you didn't see me. So there are obviously, as you said, a kind of class implications. She is just a maid. um, And here's a, here's a rabbit go and cook that. Um, But also there's a, yeah, that she was invisible because, because she was a, she was a woman and that's how she was able to get away with it. But um, yeah, I think you can, you can read certainly read the film in the in this, and I'd love to yeah, kind of love to hear more of your thoughts on the kind of gender politics of the film because um, what what the film is, if it's Im- ambiguous in some ways, it's very very kind of clear in in who the villains are and who the good characters are, and so I I, I quite like that sort of the way that the film. Spoke quite plainly about that, whilst underwriting it with these perhaps more ambiguous elements of fantasy. But no, I think in terms of the gender politics, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on.
2: Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of writing on Del Toro or commenting on Del Toro is listening to Del Toro because he's such a great uh, commentator on his own work. But that in you know, in a way, it makes part of our work redundant. But you know, he's he's highlighted to the to the audience, you know, his use of um, feminine um, iconography, shapes, the use of the circles, the use of the light. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on these kind of round windows, for example. So, just in terms of the aesthetics of the film, he's tried to create this, where well, he's succeeding, created this feminine space. And then he talks about the military spaces, which is, you know, often shot with a blue light, and there's there's a lot of shots of trees so there's you know vertical lines versus feminine shapes so he's very deliberately created a fantasy feminine world to counter the the masculine hyper-masculine militaristic world of of Franco's Spain so you know this is why I I, you know I didn't like I did read it as feminist despite the fact that we have a the king at the end because you know she goes on to rule she's not just as that um, it says she ruled for for many centuries. So this is a, a girl who, who with power in a film that celebrates the feminine mm. form.
0: I think. Um, I mean, I, I I've I've taught this film before for like you know introduction how we read mise en scène. Yeah. Because I think there's something really fascinating about um, the use of that iconography, um, and the relationship uh, relationship between sort of. Uh, the idea of adopting a critical eye or looking—we've talked about this already—but um, that the, the, the sort of the poster shot of the movie, the tree, which it comes yeah. back to again and again and ends on. I mean, to me, as soon as I saw that, I yeah. mean, I, I mean, before the film, it, it looked like a, it looked like an ovary, exactly. you know, it, it, it exactly. obviously looks like an ovary, yeah. and and, and um, what I find really fascinating is that. <laughs> Uh, When I teach it to students, I almost have to sort of poke them before they'll say, that looks a bit like an ovary, doesn't it? And what's really fascinating, and certainly for someone who's sort of interested in relation to fantasy and psychoanalysis, is that any kind of psychoanalytic reading of any fantasy movie ever almost invariably points out the thing that looks a bit like a phallus or the phallic imagery. And phallic imagery is just like 101 boring Freudian reading of anything. It's where can we find phalluses? And yet there's this just sort of rather overt ovarian sort of, you know, image that, that titles the movie that that we're sort of not seeing yeah. and or, or, or at least culturally we're not in, we're not in design. And then, you know, there, there's the moon, exactly, there's um, exactly. the spilt blood, there's all this really yeah. quite, you know, it's not exactly. that hard to spot if you're looking for it. And the final line of the movie is exactly that, right? It's, or at least the English translation is, it's visible only for those who know where to look. Yeah. Um, and there's this whole thing about, using quite obvious imagery in a way that you still have to, because of sort of, I don't know, because of patriarchy, I guess, we're still having to sort of, um, to find.
2: Mm. Um,
0: and it's like, it's again, it's back to this thing about why does everyone want, because of four seconds where the captain looks at the fawn and, and he disappears, why does everybody want to discount all this imagery, all this yeah. gorgeous, wonderful yeah. effect imagery as being merely a delusion? And it, it, to me, it's it's part of that same thing. It's this, um, you know, I've given you all the clues. There's not even a clue. I've given you all the, the stuff. And isn't, just, it just...
2: <laughs> isn't it interesting? I don't quite know where I'm going with this. I absolutely <laughs> agree with all of that. And, and isn't it interesting that the pale man doesn't have a phallus? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You, know, the most, yeah. you know, he's deliberately sexless. Yeah. So...
0: I don't know what that it means, but yeah, no, I don't either. Unless
2: it's kind of the, you know, to to take your point about the phallus and the kind of Mm. the Freudian. It's maybe it's about you know, you know, the the dictatorial man with a little penis syndrome, but taken to an extreme. I don't know.
0: I've read readings of this movie where, like, you know, the, the, the only part of sort of attempted to sort of see any sexual imagery or, you know, you know, uh, gendered imagery in any of it is the bit with the fawn in the, you know, the labyrinth where he first appears, and there is some sort of quasi-phallic object sticking up in the thing. Of, like, of all the stuff to point out, like, yeah. that seems absurd, like, that that's the thing we're going to focus on, like, when there's all these other imagery yeah, going absolutely. on. So, yeah, I think, I think the movie's, a, you know, interested in... In in encouraging spectators to look at things differently.
2: Yeah, and he's still you know, Toro's talked about the um, oh gosh, my mind's just gone. The um, his other Spanish Civil War film. Oh, um, Devil's,
0: Backbone. Devil's Backbone. The yeah. Devil's
2: Backbone, and he's talked about you know their brother and sister films. So he's talked about he's talked about it in feminine language as well. That you know Devil's Backbone is mainly concerned with boys in an orphanage um Mm. and and this is mainly this is concerned with a female universe or at least privileging a female yeah i just
1: wrote the word family down as you were as you were both talking because um that sort of that theme of surrogacy for a lot of the film of failures um mother is sort of incapacitated and and ultimately um Second spoiler, dies when kind of giving birth to uh, a child who isn't Vidal's but will pretend to be a Vidal's and Vidal isn't married to. And so all this stuff about kind of pretense and uh, front and back and reveal uh, is all anchored and supported by. But there's something around and uh, maybe that's what led me down the sort of the pathway of, of um uh the the fantasies is part of uh, a failure's coping because of a sort of absence of a family but I, I i also don't think it's as um as straightforward as that. that, that what I was going to say, and because you were talking about mise-en-scene and film style, I was thinking about um, <clears throat> kind of the, the long take and and there's some work done yeah. on um, CGI's relationship to monstrosity, but through um, an idea. So this is William Brown's idea of kind of temporal continuity that, he, and he's writing about um, the Beowulf. So he's writing about the 2007 Robert Zemeckis motion capture film um, Beowulf. Uh, and there's a bit where he just essentially just says, we don't enjoy monsters through montage we like to have we like to see monsters in in sort of th- temporally continuous so if there's too much cutting then it breaks the illusion because we kind of think of that you know the film becomes artificially constructed it draws attention to mm-hmm. um the gaps where that hide the effect whereas actually a lot of um a failure's engagement with monsters um is very long and languid and um is conveyed through a series of looks, but often they're in the same frame at the same time. It, I felt like the film wasn't trying to cut away from its effects to enhance its effects. It was allowing, if if we're going back to this theme of looking and, and um, disbelief uh, and, and what the film did, it allowed really nice moments where the where a failure as a child um, with this imagination or perhaps not imagination because the fantasy is real, but when she's engaging and looking and conversing with, with the the, um, the monsters who aren't all evil but they are supernatural as much as anything the film is giving them space to have this kind of engagement so we we're enjoying the monsters because the film isn't cutting away from them and it allows um a failure and these these um fantasy effects to coexist uh, and yeah. it seems to be that del toro is delighting and reveling in the moments where they they meet and come together. And I think it goes back to what we've said earlier about how the film is a lot more um, deft in the way that it brings together and more suggestive in the way it brings together sort of live action and animated elements.
2: And it's, you know, that he's talked about the, the cinematography taking the the point of view of the curious child, you know, and the curious child who's not looking away but keeps mm. looking and, you know, trying to discover what's at the end of the, the corridor. Yeah, or the labyrinth.
0: Mm. Uh, my favorite. <laughs> Um, bit of the movie is I think, unless I've misremembered the, the first moment where we get some sort of fantastical imagery and it's when Ophelia tells the story to her mum uh, of the 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 rose at the top of the mountain
2: yeah, yeah. and there's
0: this sort of faux long take isn't there yeah. It's sort of, for me it's Captures all the sort of tonal stuff going on in the entire movie, and that you've got the child telling the story from her perspective, but it also gives her agency because she is the storyteller. She's in control of the visuals. Um, it goes through, so she's she's resting on her mother's pregnant um, uh, stomach, and it goes through into the sort of the child in in the womb, um, and then sort of almost pans left um, to this sort of you know gorgeous fantasy imagery of this mountain with this. Um, With this rose at the top, and the story, what the parallel, the the parable is what there's a rose at the top of the mountain covered by thorns. People tried to go up the mountain to get the rose, but they um, they couldn't. So no one tried anymore. So the rose just stayed there forever. Um, Something like that, right? I don't think I've
2: yeah, no, that's yeah.
0: So the story being that if you know if people, people giving up and people not trying, um, and the you know the, the lack of hope and all that kind of, and it's sort of through this you know again faux quite obviously faux long take going all the way back mm. into the bedroom, and it's fantasy reality commingling. It's st- child as storyteller, child as centre, yeah. um, and fertilities in there, and this, the themes of the movie are encapsulated and
2: and I mean, this isn't this isn't a story about slaying a dragon by a, no. a, a warrior this is a you know again it's a very sort of female mm. image the other thing that you saying that the very first line of the story is the story once upon mm. a time and then the very last line of of the film is the storyteller telling us that she reigns for a long time so this this is why i think it has to be read as fantasy as you know the diegesis is fantasy we're told it's a story at the beginning it ends as a story we don't want to start wondering if it's real or not we're being told it's a story
1: so what what does that mean for the again going back to the kind of historical specificity then um what does that given all that we've talked about what does what does that summation of fantasy then do to the the quite vi- you know quite violent um and visceral uh, historical reality because i was struck by how grotesque it, you know, you have obviously the villains are the villains and, and, but you have in terms of, you know, the, the blood and bodily defamation in the historical real world, you have, it is quite kind of grotesque. And, and you do see, you mentioned it, Vidal getting shot just under the eye at the end, um his sort of split side mouth, very Joker-esque, um, but also um, the, the rebels who they kind of capture and, and, uh, ultimately, one of them is then euthanized by the doctor, but but it's quite it's quite visceral and violent, and you have these. So I'm just I'm just trying to reconcile the, the fantasy with the. Yeah, reality. I mean, I'm,
2: I have a theory, which is about time, which is the world of Ophelia, the Princess Moana, the King are, are timeless, and then there are points in human history, and the Spanish Civil War is one of them, and the post-Spanish Civil War is one of them. And they will be repeated. So you could take that and apply it to a different point where you've got forces of whatever you may call them, fascism versus communism. Is, um, you, you've got points of which he you know, very much takes the point of view that one is good, one is evil. So it's almost like they're abstracted from their particular moment in time as well as existing in their mm. moment in time. So that's how I kind of see the fantasy. It's, it's a way of making this trans-historical and transnational, um, as well as rooted in a in a kind of present. That that's how I would read that.
1: No, I, I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting. The sort of relationship between um, I, and I and this is this is tangent central now, but I, I'm I'm sort of interested in ideas of of rhythm, and I've recently discovered and encountered rhythm analysis. Um, and and it's I'm interested in its relationship to animation as we talk a lot about, in animation about movement, but we often don't talk about rhythm, or it gets sort of subsumed into a broader discussion of, of movement. But I've been interested in the relationship. Where I've just discovered writing on rhythm analysis um, related to exactly that kind of uh, linear uh, uh, and sort of cyclical rhythms versus cosmic and vital. So the the ongoing. Yeah. Day and night rhythms versus um, more micro-level rhythms, like uh, yeah. yeah, menstruation, sleep patterns, all those kinds of things. So I quite like those that two, that that disparity between exactly what you're saying. Those two types yeah. of rhythm, where you have an ongoing um, kind of cosmic reality or cosmic yeah. rhythm that is then uh, interrupted by these these moments of historical reality. But there's something that's uh, fleeting about those, and something that's long-standing about. Broader rhythm, so yeah, I totally agree that.
2: Just as an aside, I was in preparation for this. I was just looking at, at what Del Toro is up to now, and he was talking about obviously it's been interrupted by COVID, but he's working on Pinocchio, and I, I don't know much about it, but I noticed he's rooting it into Mussolini's Italy. So I thought that's going to be quite interesting. Wow. Again, that combination of a, a sort of you know fairy tale uh, mm. with a kind of. Uh, dark historical reality
1: yeah and I mean I know that issue of time is is as you were just talking Deborah. I was thinking oh exactly the 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 watch Vidal's watch that that breaks um but well it's father's watch and so that it introduces the idea that history is repeating itself and in fact that's what Vidal says at the end please like you know I want want the child to know and Nathanius is like, no, 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 the child is not going to know, not even know who you are. And so I quite yeah. like that. It exactly feeds into your idea of repetition.
0: Yeah. Well, it's well, yeah. really interesting. I just, I, there's a book by Bliss Karalim, um Translating Time, that's about the fantastic and its relationship to time. Um, and she talks, she actually talks about it from the perspective, you know, the philosophy of Henri Bergson and, and Deleuze and which is very sort of in vogue in, film studies and film theory at the moment, but what her basic point is, is that moments of the fantastic moments of disbelief, moments where a sense of reality is ruptured, not only ruptures our sense of space and material existence, but also our temporal existence. And I think the quote she uses is, um, the fantastic invites us to think in disaccustomed ways about Mm -hmm. time. And she relates that to sort of, you know, Bergsonian politics of um, duration and you know, feeling the moment rather than finding value or progression in the moment. Um And there's perhaps something in that as well. The sort of the playing of, of 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 history, not just as a as a chron, you know, you know, uh, using historical event not necessarily to tell a chrono- chronology of events, but to use the moment as a as a emotional, you know. um Beat or an emo- or you know, emotional truth, I guess. Not really sure what an emotional yeah. truth is, but it's that And phrase. a warning, and a yeah.
2: warning. Yeah, mm. definitely. Which, which
0: is what history really should be used for. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah,
2: this isn't over, yeah.
0: Just to um, jump in on that, the, the William Brown article that
1: I uh, briefly referred to, the, the Beowulf one, goes on to then talk about time and space in digital cinema. So it sort of ties in this one, this idea of, of monstrosity, um, and and the the uh, I guess the collapse of of time that we're talking about, but one of the kind of main arguments I think around digital technology, its relationship to time and and space, is simply that you know even without a monster in it, um, cinema is now increasingly monstrous because of the way that it can manipulate time and space. And actually, one of these ideas is this idea of a kind of a time space that subverts um, narrative and spectacle. Suddenly, you can you know, monstrous cinema, and these are Brown's words, can show. And you have a, a roving camera that can seemingly create continuous space and time, which he then calls time spaces. So it seems I- I- exactly the film becomes this sort of strain. Its use of effects is is uh, incredible, but the film itself is also a time space because it seems to collapse different spaces together, different times together, and then smooths over the gaps between them so that they they, they are separate, but they also threaten to intermingle. And, and again, it's it's back to Del Toro's really sort of, you know, n- interesting handling of, of fantasy within, within a broader sort of historical reality. But I think what you were saying there, there um, uh, Alex, about Lim's ideas of sort of spectral time, I think, and, and um, there's something interesting about time and space in digital cinema, how that's been framed as monstrous, which then ties back to this film, which is, you know, a film about, the 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 monsters that that pervade historical reality.
0: It's almost as if fantasy and animation are related, Chris. We should probably do a podcast about that. Final um, <laughs> sort of theme that I would I'd love us to sort of just unpack briefly before we um we wrap up, and that's the sort of idea of, of I know, Deborah, you've written about this about the film's sort of um breakout appeal to more sort of international audiences and in the way the film is both rich in its heritage but also mm. somehow manages to speak beyond that heritage. Uh, and yeah. I wonder if there's any way of relating this, Chris, in a minute to sort of the use of CGI in the film. But um, I wonder mm-hmm. Deborah, if you could just start with, you know, what, what, so the film's sort of legacy in terms of it's, its you know, it's often a film from, you know, a, it's probably one of the few, you know, it's a film that a lot of people have seen from that's Mexico produced, Spanish language, that they might not have seen other kinds of movies that, if from that ilk. So I wondered if you could just talk about its, its legacy and whether you think maybe is there anything like, is there anything lost in translation, potentially, from, from this, this sort of internationalisation?
2: The lost in translation, I'd have to watch it, look at the subtitles, and it, it's not something that comes to mind. I think one thing I... I think I'll start from the beginning and the end of my experience with it. first time I saw it, it was at a <laughs> cinema, the um, person selling me the tickets warned me that there were subtitles. <laughs> Um, And I very snobbily said something like, yes, that's why I'm here or or something, uh, you know, annoying. Um, But then he said to me, no, we have to tell people because people have been walking out, which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, this was, in you know, in 2006. um, And I think there's been an evolution. And then I think now we, with digital platforms, the films had a kind of afterlife because, you know, you can now access it. I think it's on Netflix. I'm not sure. Um, It has been, you can certainly get it on a a whole spectrum of of digital platforms. So I think that's taken it to a much wider global audience. And then I think, you know, I wrote about the way it was marketed and it was marketed very cleverly to appeal to genre um, fans who knew Del Toro because of his work on Blade or Hellboy. Um, Actually, yeah, no, the first Hellboy. Um yeah, so it was marketed to genre fans, um, played all the sci-fi festivals, very much um covered by those of us who are Hispanists, who, you know, were very excited about the film. It was also marketed to Latino communities in the United States. So it had a clever, you know, films don't just exist, they have to be sold as well. Um, it was very well marketed and i think this is, and then of course we've got the branding of del toro so people will see a del toro film so i think all of those factors have helped with it, its its global um circulation
0: um and then, and then i guess for chris like on like this theme one of the films that del toro spoke about i remember in, in interviews at the time was spirit of a beehive which is a film i yeah. but it's not a movie i know a very um well but I, I remember watching it sort of shortly after Pan's Labyrinth is sort of hope to get another fix of 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 that kind of material and it and it is very you know it's a sort of magical realist story of a girl that thinks she's encountered the um Frankenstein's monster essentially um but but it's very sort of austere in its visuals at least from my memory um and it doesn't have yeah. these very big lavish um images and I wonder if one of the things that makes it um palatable to a more international audience we're talking about pan's labyrinth now is it sort of use of cgi um that's you know that it, it uses a vocabulary that mainstream cinema um you know expresses itself in and it's lush and it's gorgeous and and you know del, as you, as sounds like what deborah's saying you know del toro is apt at moving between these two brackets and and blurring the boundaries a little bit um certainly hellboy 2 Looks very similar to Pan's Labyrinth in in many ways, and there are lots of there are lots of scenes in Hellboy Two that I think could have could have been taken from sort of early drafts of Pan's Labyrinth, sort of you know set pieces and things. So I don't know is, is that CGI being a sort of um, enabler of a certain popularist mode of, of watching that that you know it, it's because it's drenched in CGI in a good way that people came to this movie or something or, or makes it a more accessible
1: yeah possibly I mean I suppose there are two there are two responses to that question I think the first one is is um yeah we're thinking what two thousand and six so this film. Uh, is among I, I suppose what it is is that there are two we've talked previously about this there is kind of two waves of superhero movies the early 2000s ones um the catwomans and the daredevils and then the 2008 onward iron man and marvel and so forth uh, and then you have the sort of middle years between um, and there are some really interesting kind of experiments with c g i i think more broadly um and experiments that lead me to my second response which is uh, experiments that were done by pans and effect studio so cafe um Uh, FX, which has now dissolved, it dissolved in in 2010. But if you look at the films that they worked on, and and certainly a lot of the rhetoric around Pan's Labyrinth in visual effects guides um, was kind of brought to you by the people that did The Departed and Sin City and The Aviator. and Sin City was 2005. King Kong was 2005. Underworld Evolution, another film that they worked on 2006. Um, so you get these sort of mid 2000s movies that are starting to push CGI in, in kind of slightly different directions. Um, you then kind of get other other stuff slightly later on. Eragon, uh, uh, Ghost Rider, Spider-Man 3. Um, but there are some really interesting yeah, mid 2000s movies where CGI was being made to sort of do slightly different things uh, I think the reason for this is that CGI more broadly this is about 10 years after um, Toy Story uh, and by this point and I've written about I've written about this sort of moment where 2005 2006 Hollywood's getting a little bit sick of. CGI, it's getting a little bit, which is why Pixar's mid-2000s mid, mid um, 2000s movies don't do particularly well, Cars, it's it's sort of like we're getting a lot of Hollywood computer animated films, a lot of companies are um, jumping on the bandwagon, lots of previously visual effects studios are turning their hand at feature length computer animated films, and so our, 10 years after Toy Story, it's getting getting a little bit, you know, it's getting a little bit, ugh. And so I want, and then then you get films that are doing trying to do something slightly different. I think Sin City is is a prime example of that. Um, trying to sort of take and Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, which is two thousand and four, um, trying to use blue screen, uh, green screen, the virtual backlot, um, comic book adaptations that are different to superhero movies, which I think is why Sin City is is sort of both terrific, but also didn't do particularly well, though it did have a sequel. Um, and so I guess this film sort of sits within that. It's trying to do things that are, uh, you know, don't, use CGI in ways that don't look like a Pixar movie or trying trying to take CGI into different sort of creative spaces, um, uh, and as I said, certainly a lot of the rhetoric around the film when it was sold on the basis of his visual effects was, you know, you, this is, is these are techniques it uses. Um, it, these are visual effects people that worked on Hellboy and the Second Blade with Del Toro. But ultimately, the films that are being cited are these mid-2000s sort of quote-unquote more experimental movies like like Sin City. So um, yeah, I had to do a bit more mm-hmm. bit more research, but a little a kind of tentative look at where the film sits in visual effects um, discourse is sort of yeah might might yield some really interesting um ways into the film.
0: Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's 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 at a moment where um audiences are perhaps looking for new ways of experiencing CGI. Yeah. So um it yeah. fits in with what we've been saying. I guess I, I, I mean we could keep going but I I, I sense we should probably um this, that's probably an episode's worth everybody. So um does anyone have any final um thoughts they would like to share about the movie? I think unbelievably i've managed to get all mine out i've ticked off fertility mainstreamization is the form real so i'm um, my notes are done um uh, what else have we got um yeah i've, I've got my um
1: fair, fairy the use of fairy tales in the film um and how they're sort of mistreated and i, I mean I, i'd like to say a little bit more about um a Faviors book that sort of animates and reanimates itself which i think is quite yeah. interesting um and moments where you get a bit of sort of cell animation, or certainly uh, digital that's made to look like cell animation, sort of the painterly effects, um, and the really striking moment where the pages of the rare, uh, the book turn red, and then that immediately foreshadows um, a scene with her her mother. So I think her book is really kind of interesting. I um, had a little note on the travels to the countryside versus modernity, which we've touched on. Uh, links to Beetlejuice, um, and this our broader idea of CGI's relationship to the monstrous. Um, which, yeah, I, it, certainly I, I, I think is a, um, a way in that the monsters, in the, you know, the CGI in the film isn't part of this domain of evil. It's not tied up with the sort of in the same way as the mythology of the giant ape or the dinosaur where cinema increasingly goes. These are these are affective and emotional and um, heroic digital monsters in lots of cases, notwithstanding all the other visual effects in the film. So that's me done. Uh, Deborah, any final little bits, anything that we haven't covered in terms of your love of the film?
2: Just shameless self-promotion. Um, yeah, I mean, I spent God knows how many months, years of my life writing a chapter on this. Um, and I did a lot of research into the, the fairy tales and the, this book that Del Toro was influenced by called The Science of Fairy Tales – um 19th century book um that predates prop uh, for example and um yeah so if you want to know more about that just buy my book the three amigos the transnational fantasies of of um i can't remember what it was called guillermo del Toro, alfonso cuaron and uh Iñari too can't remember which order i put them in but yeah i do i do deal with that quite a lot in the book so if you're interested but yeah thanks so much Thanks so much for the invite. It's been really self-indulgent to get to talk about all this. It's great. Thank you.
0: Hey, it's, it's, it's been our pleasure. Can you, if um, listeners wanted to sort of find you, do you have a social media presence or are there anything they can find accessibly as a nice introduction?
2: Um, I'm on Twitter, Devorah Shore. You can see my uni page. Um, I'm happy to send people anything I've written. Um, so yeah, Deborah Shore, University of Portsmouth.
0: Thanks, Deborah, for joining us. Uh, Chris, uh, that's us for another week. Um quick bit of admin um remember everybody you can uh get in touch and suggest your favorite comic book or graphic novel adaptation we're going to cover it on the next episode of the podcast so keep those suggestions coming in um and we will do a listener choice again um in our new sort of uh one for you one for us structure um You can also, of course, find us on Twitter, um, fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M-research, and it's the same handle for our Instagram, our Reddit, and our Facebook pages, I believe. You can contact us via the website, fantasy-animation.com org there's a contact us tab just fill out the form there and you'll you'll be able to talk to us um keep those suggestions flowing in as well as you know give us some retweets give us some likes um generally help support the show subscribe um if you are downloading this through a certain um you know popular podcast feed um give us a review a star rating would be really handy um i think oh and if you want to write a blog post um chris you he will you want some blog posts right I always want some blog posts yes um, if you're interested in writing kind of a short
1: um, piece it's a great way to um, if you've got an idea brewing or something that you'd like a a bit of kind of feedback on um, do send us uh, stuff you can visit the website you can check out the how to contribute tab um, and and kind of go through the kinds of stuff that we publish we publish editorials, sequence analyses uh, reviews of uh, of film and and TV if you're stuck in lockdown and you're watching something and you think there's an editorial idea in there uh, drop us a line um,
0: and uh, yeah we'll we'll kind of get the conversation flowing Deborah, thanks so much for coming on the show
2: thanks both really enjoyed
0: it and that's been us for another episode we'll see you next time bye y se dice
2: que la princesa descendió al reino de su padre y que ahí reinó con justicia y bondad por muchos siglos que fue amada por sus súbditos y que dejó detrás de sí pequeñas huellas de su paso por el mundo visibles solo para aquel que sepa dónde mirar.